He's gracious. Um, and I'm going to need that grace. Uh, we're all going to need that grace as we enter into yet another challenging um, theme this morning. Um, and we go into it by letting the word of the Lord set the pace. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, to honor the reading of God's word with our bodies. This is Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. This will be our anchor passage as we go through a number of passages today. This will be the passage we keep coming back to. Paul says this, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Lord, you are our creator. You breathed breath into these bodies. You are our redeemer and restorer. You breathe spiritual life into us because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we ask this morning that Jesus would be beautified in our vision, that we would see the glory of who you are and what you're doing as you redeem and restore humanity. Lord, by the power of your grace, by the power of your spirit, would you help me to love well this morning? Help us all to love well. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the Bible begins with a unity in diversity designed to bring about total flourishing. All in a beautiful garden. And the Bible ends with a unity in diversity designed to bring about total flourishing, all in a beautiful garden. Both Genesis and Revelation are quite clear on the vision of our origin and the vision of our destiny. And this is something that we should keep in mind as we enter into the contested and difficult territory that we do today. Now, as we bring this sermon series on historic and global distinctives of the church to a close... We've seen a number of things over the weeks. We started in week one by seeing that the church is called to be a forgiving, sacrificial, and non-coercive people who use power for the good of others. Then we moved on to see that the church is called to care for the poor and suffering, meeting needs with joyful generosity. And there we went on to see that the church is committed to the sanctity of life, Acknowledging people of all ages as image bearers of God, seeing the worth in a human being from womb to tomb. Week four, we saw the church lives by a biblically defined vision of sexuality, marriage, and gender. And it's probably no surprise to you that next to sex and gender, the subject of race is one of the most discussed topics in our culture today. And that is where we go today. So to be clear on the front end, this distinctive of the church, this fifth distinctive, says the church is a multi-ethnic community that embodies radical hospitality and crosses cultural and national boundaries. The church is a multi-ethnic community that embodies radical hospitality and crosses cultural 
and national boundaries. Now, as we approach this, I think it's wise to acknowledge, acknowledge something, something that we've done in the preceding weeks. Every human being, every one of us is in need of redemption and in need of transformation into Christ-likeness. Everyone. And it is the historic and global position of the church that our sin nature has affected every aspect of our being. Sin has disrupted us and distorted all of our faculties and relationships. Now, I don't mean that we are as sinful as we can possibly be, but sin does touch all of who we are, our mind, our heart, our will, our emotions, our body, our relationships, how we relate to one another. And so just as sin has affected all aspects of our humanity, so all aspects of our humanity need to be transformed, what we call theologically being sanctified, to become more and more like Jesus. We need to come into greater Christ-likeness. And that includes how we treat others. Our relationship with others needs sanctification. We could all grow in loving our neighbors well, couldn't we? This has had me doing an awful lot of thinking, not just a sermon over the past year and a half, two years or so. Could it be that there is the shadow of prejudice in my own heart? Could it be that there's a fracture of racism, of racist thought that runs cracked and ragged through the landscape of my, my own mind? And could it be that I am marked by a partiality that I remain unaware of? And could it be that I have sinned against those with a different color of skin, different culture, different nationality, because of our differences? And so um, I've taken a hard look into the mirror and a hard look into the scriptures over the last year and a half, and I have asked myself, Do my assumptions about who is driving the infuriating car in front of me, about who they are, about what they might look like, do my assumptions about them really show me to be blameless? Do my reflexive comfort walking the crowded streets of the the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem and then my reflexive discomfort and fear and mistrust while I was two streets over walking in the Muslim quarter, did those not show something within my own soul? Do my assumptions about these neighbors in my cul-de-sac versus these other neighbors in my cul-de-sac who look a lot more like me, did my differential in assumptions leave me without any need to becoming more like Jesus? See, according to the scriptures, there was only one human heart untouched by the shadow of prejudice. Only one human heart unmarked by the soul-vandalizing ways of racism. Only one human heart unmarred by dehumanizing bias. Only one soul perfectly free from some creeping partiality. There was one human heart that never sinned against fellow man. Jesus alone perfectly loves humanity. It was he alone who knew no sin. He sympathizes with us. He knows what we go through. He knows what it's like to be human. Yet he was without sin. 
And I say all this to acknowledge that if we don't acknowledge that sin has affected all of our being, all of our relationships with other people, and then we go on to talk about race and ethnicity and justice and injustice and equality, we will make some very unbiblical missteps about the problem, and therefore we're going to make some unbiblical missteps regarding the solutions. Missteps, by the way, that have become popularized and minted into moral currency in our culture. And so this morning, we need to see the big, beautiful, glorious story that God is writing with history. And, and we need to not only see that, that racism is, is evil, that, that it is wicked, that it's a sin, but why? What is the big, deep, rich why racism is evil? That why is it a sin? And so that brings us to this. Racism has two things by which it strikes at humanity and God. Racism has two things by which it strikes at humanity and God. First, it denies the creation of humanity as God's image bearers. It rejects it. It disavows it. It does violence to the truth that we are made as God's image bearers, whoever we are. And secondly, it denies our recreation in Christ, our union with Christ through his work of redemption, two things. See, racism works to deface reality on two fronts. Vandalizing our origin and vandalizing our destiny, slandering God with both accusations. Both of which, by the way, lead to violence against God and self and others. Now, it's important that we talk about where human rights come from. We've talked about this in a number of contexts already throughout the sermon series, right? Uh, sanctity of life and sexuality. Where do human rights come from? What is it that makes it possible for us to say that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights? Where does that come from? What well, comes from a transcendent source that bears forth and safeguards human rights. It is a transcendent source that bears forth and safeguards human rights. You know, you'll often hear Martin Luther King Jr. quoted as saying the following. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I'm sure you've heard that. I've heard it a number of times throughout the last two years in various media, on the radio. I've seen it tweeted. It's been on the news. But the, the quote comes up like all the time regarding race and justice, as it should, as it should. But what is curious is that most who quote it never quote the reasoning behind it. The secular media loves the quote. It wants the fruit of it, but then it disavows the root that allows it to be what it is. So here's what he goes on to say in a letter from a Birmingham jail. He says, A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law, to put in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas. An unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. 
See, King's understanding of this grows out of the good soil of Genesis. King was a churchman, a clergyman, a pastor, yes, with feet of clay like us all. But he rooted his understanding of racial, ethnic equality in biblical theology. The glory of human worth is found in image bearing. And that is where we should start with the scriptures. So we go back to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to do a, a short tour of the history of redemption. So Genesis 1, uh, we'll pick up at verse 26 through 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. This, theologically, is called the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God. They are the pinnacle of creation. Humanity is different than the sky creatures, than the sea creatures, than the shrubs, than the fruit-bearing trees and the land animals. God intimately created us and breathed his breath into us. In humanity, in our diversity and unity, we were to partner with God and each other to have dominion over all creation. Humans were not meant to struggle for domination over each other. They were to have dominion Together, not over one another. They were to reinforce each other's humanity, not to dehumanize the one who was in front of them, not to otherize the other. So right away, right from page one, we see the Bible begins with unity and diversity designed for total flourishing in this beautiful garden. And the Bible calls a shalom. This is, this is peace. This is all things working together for mutual total flourishing. Now racism is the denial, a violent vandalizing of the truth about who we are, who God is, and how he has made this world. To see other human beings as somehow inferior or subhuman, based upon a genetic or uh, an ethnic trait, based upon any location of habitation, based upon a country or a neighborhood, is a blatant refusal of God's good design. And it is to vandalize God himself by diminishing his image bearers. How do you strike at the one who oversees the universe? Well, you strike at his image bearers. So, we can see that one of the things of evil, of the evil of racism, has to do with the created order and our humanity. The other thing has to do with the recreated order and our status as those who are in Christ. So let's get to Jesus. Let's keep following the story arc of redemption now. Adam and Eve, how does that go? Does that go great? Does not go so great. They sin, things fall apart. In chapter 3, the downward spiral grows wider and darker and deeper. Keep turning right in your Bible and watch the chaos unfurl. Watch the harmony fracture. Humanity is divided up. Language is confused. People are scattered in judgment, referring to the Tower of Babel here. There is mass alienation, estrangement growing, ethnic opposition. People are not walking with God 
And so they're not walking with each other. Sin has radically divided humanity. Self-concerned identity groups that are striving for power and dominance, that's the way of things. Using power for self-gain, finding meaning and identity by being against the other, identifying ourselves as being over and opposite the other. We're not like them. We're not like them. We're better because X, Y, Z. Because without God as our creator and justifier, humanity devolves into self-righteous justification, trying to justify our own existence, and so often doing it by tearing others down. And we have this deep existential insecurity that is the fallout of a God-evicted world. Like when God is out of this world, there's this deep existential insecurity that we have that works itself out in vile ways. And so often it's in lifting up ourself at the expense of others. Identity politics is a modern expression of an ancient sinful power struggle. Now, God is on the move, though. Out of this international division and chaos from Genesis 11 comes Genesis chapter 12, comes Abraham. So Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, says this, The Lord God said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So you can see God is on the move, right? The long arc of the story is moving towards justice and mercy. Somehow through Abraham and his family, God will bring about healing to the nations. He will bring restoration. He will make a new Eden, a new beautiful garden. But things... You know, they fall apart. Centuries pass as Abraham's family wrestles with God, sometimes trusting him, often failing to trust him. The sin nature of human hearts just keeps sabotaging it all. Bigotry, racism, partiality, bias, pride, they course through the veins of God's people, even though he has lavished them with grace. There's so much sin and brokenness in the history. Like, let's not forget Abraham and Sarah's own resume of of sin, right? They abused and dehumanized a foreigner, an Egyptian. Her name was Hagar. Her her name in, in Hebrew literally means the foreigner. Ha is the word the, and gar is the word foreigner. The foreigner. They they took and they abused this foreigner. They not in accordance to God's plan. They did something on their own and used somebody to get something they wanted and then pushed her out. And this isn't the only case of God's chosen people acting unjustly, right? Just read the whole testament. That's why the prophets were needed. See, external ethical laws and policies cannot stop the evil that is in the human heart. But then comes Jesus, right? Good news. Here comes Jesus. He dies for his enemies. He breaks the power of oppression by converting hate to brotherhood and sisterhood through sacrificial love by his grace. In Matthew chapter 12, it is said of Jesus that he will proclaim justice to the nations and in his name the nations will put their hope. The word nations there is the word ethnos, peoples, different ethnicities, the different people groups of the world. 
So there is hope for the whole world through this Jesus. In, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus launches his public ministry in the synagogue. And as he does, he starts to bring up references from Elijah and Elisha and how they ministered to those who were ethnos, to the people outside of Israel, to the widow of Zarephath, to, to Naaman the Syrian, and, and how salvation would come through him and go out to the world as well. And his listeners were so offended that they tried to throw him off of a cliff. They were ticked off. They were angry. And then move forward. There's another point where Jesus goes to the temple, right? And he overturns the money-changing tables. Why? Well, a number of different reasons. But where were those tables set up? They were set up in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. And Jesus knows that these Gentiles who are coming to worship God can't worship God because it's been made into a bazaar and a carnival and a money-making scheme. And he says, enough, and flips the tables. And he says, my father's house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all people, for all ethnos. And then after Jesus' resurrection, he sends his disciples out. He sends them to go and make disciples of all Nations, no exception, no favoritism, zero room for racism in the hearts of his followers. Then, 50 days after his crucifixion and resurrection, he sends his empowering spirit to live in the hearts of his people. At Pentecost, 50 days after his resurrection, he breathes again into humanity, creating a race, so to speak. God pours out a spirit to transform the human heart. Peter stands up to all the visitors that are there in the, the loaded, the, the bloated city of Jerusalem, because all the people from all over the world are there for the festivities. And he stands up and he preaches to all of these different people from all of these different countries. And he says, The way is through Jesus Christ. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ because of what he's done. And oh, by the way, you all crucified him. So the gospel is preached. And then a miracle happens. They hear the proclamation, but they hear it in their own language. They hear it in their own native tongue. And this brings us to Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is their response. They, they can't believe what they're hearing because they're like, that guy, the Galilean, is up there preaching in his language, but I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it in my own tongue. And so they say, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does it mean? What does it mean? It means that he is uniting them through the power of his word. He is uniting them through Jesus Christ. It means he is bringing human diversity. It's various notes. And a heavenly harmony on earth. Jesus is bringing human notes of diversity into heavenly harmony on earth. He's bringing the nations together to be a people through the cross, through Jesus Christ. And so, do you see what he does here at Pentecost? 
The Spirit comes down to unite a fractured people who are at each other's throats. God is reversing the Tower of Babel in Pentecost. They tried to work their way up, tried to find unity without God. They fractured and broke apart and went separate ways. God comes down and unites them, bringing them together in the person of Jesus Christ, who was the faithful one. The Bible is so good. It's incredible. And the church was born. A multi-ethnic community that embodied radical hospitality, cross-cultural and national boundaries by the grace of God. And so Christians, apprentices of Jesus, us, were new creations. The glory of being united to Christ beautifies our differences. It doesn't wipe them out. It overcomes any group identity that we have weaponized to feel better about ourselves. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, our key verse today, why he says in Galatians 3, 26-29, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Right back to Genesis 12. See, the church wasn't divided up into the church down the road that was for Jews, the church down the road that was for Gentiles, the church across the street that was for women, the church over here that is for men, the church across town that's for black, the church that's over here for whites, the church over there, that's for Asians, the church over here, that's for Latinos. They were all brought together. They were all mixed together, and it shook the world. It was a distinctive that rocked the world. People didn't know what to do with it. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul incredibly calls those who are in Christ one new humanity. He calls Christians one new humanity. And by the way, why is Paul talking about race and all this stuff? Because there's division. There's racial strife. There's ethnic strife in the culture at large and in the church itself. Keep in mind there were those in the church who were enslaved to one another at one point. There was Romans and there was Jews. There was masters. There were slaves within the same congregations. There were open racial wounds and centuries of tribal baggage that needed healing. Sometimes it doesn't seem like much has changed over the centuries. Paul says, no more, your brothers and sisters in Christ. So to deny this multi-ethnic unity in redemption is the second thing of racism. Now, with that laid out, uh, I think we need to um, address some of the questions, some of the pains of our cultural moment as well as our history. So this is where we push even further into some uncomfortable territory, <laughs> but that's kind of been part of the course for the last few weeks, so we'll just keep that theme running. So we'll begin with this. Is racism an individual evil or a structural one? This debate has been going on strong for quite some time now, and it's bizarrely split along party lines. The right or the conservative side generally says it's a heart issue. It's a human sin issue. That's the problem. We fix it within. And then the left 
generally will, will say, you know what, no, that, it's, a, it's a structural issue. It's a systemic issue. We need to change things out here. Now, no doubt, biblically, racism is a sin rooted in the human heart. It's not some abstraction that's floating out there outside of people. It is rooted in human hearts. It is a relational disorder and deep disease, right? It is out of the heart that wickedness flows, Jesus teaches us. The problem is the human heart. The answer is a little more nuanced than that when we think of what we're talking about today. The human heart, here's a real bright way of saying it, the human heart does stuff. (laughs) The human heart does stuff. It acts out of its brokenness, right? It makes policies. It builds structures. It creates cultural artifacts. Sin compounds and it multiplies as human beings build things and create culture. I mean, just think about the networks of human trafficking and the media empires or of pornography that all work together in a terrible, sin-induced, human-destroying system. This is a wickedness of the human heart that has been built into a terrible structure. Or think about what we agreed upon just a few weeks ago, that there is injustice, structural injustice in the policies regarding abortion, slaughtering the lives of innocents built into policy. If there is injustice in the system that is murdering image bearers in the womb, could there not also be injustice anywhere else in the system slash systems in the world? The culture of a family or of an institution, we know this, can be structurally shot through with evil. We see this historically. Stalin's one-party totalitarian police state. Systemic wickedness. Mao Zedong's cult of personality. Chinese Communist Party. No structurally neutral thing. And can we really say there is no structural evil in South Africa's apartheid? Of course not. Evil can take on systemic forms. Chattel slavery. Personal sin writ large in structural forms. So yes, racism is an evil of the human heart. Yes. And the evil of the human heart, it finds expression. It can be put into policy, built into cultures, embedded into the DNA of systems. Biblically, it's both and. So, so let's not either or the mystery of iniquity, as it's called, the mystery of sin, to only this or only that. For the sake of political affiliation or ideological debate, we have to go with the Bible on this. Now, let's keep going. What forms does racism take? Well, far more than we'd like to admit is the short answer. It does not always take the form of a white hood or a yellow star. Exclusion of the other from the community of humanity, which is a pretty solid definition of what racism is. It's excluding the other from the community of humanity by which I'm the judge to get to say who's in or who's out. Exclusion of the other from the community of humanity happens in a number of different ways. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf does a brilliant job of this in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, and he identifies four key ways. Extermination, domination, assimilation, and abandonment. Extermination, domination, assimilation, and abandonment. So extermination. Those those beings that are less than me, wipe them out. I mean, this is... This is Nazi Germany. This is the Holocaust. This is Rwandan genocide. 
This is Armenian genocide. Or there's domination, segregate, enslave, terrorize, to keep within bounds and let them know who's boss. Then there's assimilation, which is refusing to accept those who don't culturally conform to you the way you want. So ultimately you're forcing a uniformity. And by the way, uniformity is radically different than unity. Unity requires difference to create a harmony. The Bible is after a cosmic harmony, not a flat squashed uniformity. And then there's abandonment, which is simply to refuse to care for the rights of another group and just let's see what happens and hopefully they're taken out at some point. Now, why hasn't the church taken a stand against racism? I've heard that question a number of times over the last two years. Well, it has. And it hasn't. So we need to think really critically here. There's a lot of lazy thinking about this. It's lazy and it's a false thing and it's a, dis, it's a historically disingenuine thing to paint with an absolutizing brush that says it always has or it never has. So let's think well here. The church has stepped up to counter the evil of racism. Paul wrote to Philemon to count Onesimus, the slave, as his brother. In the late 4th century, Gregory of Nyssa boldly spoke out against the institution of slavery, vilifying it as completely incompatible with Christianity. William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore and the Clapham sect fought the slave trade because of their convictions as followers of Jesus. And what of Christian abolitionist Angelina Grimke? She, she famously wrote an appeal to the Christian women of the South, brilliantly putting forward, is this the way of Jesus? Is this what Jesus would do? Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Do you want to be enslaved? Do you want your child ripped away? Do you want your wife taken? How does this comport with Jesus? It's a brilliant, brilliant writing. Or what of the abolition leader Frederick Douglass? He wrote, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. What of Sojourner Truth? What of Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church during World War II? What of Martin Luther King Jr. and the whole civil rights Movement. I mean, as I said before, he was a pastor, a clergyman, and he rooted the movement in the way of Jesus. He saw human dignity as rooted in image-bearing, and many churches joined him. Many churches did not, and many churches actively resisted. So did the church resist the evil of racism? No? Yes? Regarding apartheid, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee's final report spoke of Christianity as being both an ideological underpinning for apartheid, for some, as well as being a source of opposition against apartheid that seek to dismantle it because of the human dignity of these image bearers. So the question is, who was seeing Scripture rightly? Who was following the way of Jesus? And this is an easy answer. Absolutely easy answer. Scripture is always on the side of crucifying racism. It's always on the side of loving our neighbor with costly love. It's always on the side of ethnic equality. Well, next question then. Why isn't the church taking more action to fight racism then? 
Well, I think that question deserves a lot of counter questions. Like when you say that, what, what do you mean? Do you mean our local church? Do you mean um, the church in the area? Do you mean the, the international church? Just the American church? What do you mean? A lot of qualifications. But if you're saying that, that just flat out, why isn't the church taking more action? I don't know. I mean, lack of comfort, or excuse me, love of comfort, lack of love, ignorance, apathy and sin in our own hearts, feeling overwhelmed, not knowing what to do, shutting down, getting paralyzed. And also, I think we should call this out, there is this, there's this cultural thing going on in our hyper-politicized and toxically polarized age where when um, talk of justice is spoken of, there is an unbiblical allergic reaction. I want to qualify this. In some circles, when, when justice is spoken about, it quickly gets labeled as liberal. You've abandoned the gospel. You've gone socialist. You've gone Marxist. You've been drinking the cultural Kool-Aid. But this is often an ungracious way of thinking that does show, can show some lack of reading the scriptures well. So what of Abraham? Remember Abraham? He was taught to teach his family to do righteousness and to do justice. Genesis 18, verse 19 says, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Key words here. Righteousness and justice. Righteousness is the Hebrew word zedekah, which means right relationships with people, treating them as image bearers, loving well. And then justice, um, mishpat. This includes both retributive justice and restorative justice. In other words, dealing with those who do injustice, making sure we have good, healthy systems, safe things, and also advocating for those who are victims of injustice. It's the costly ministry of making other people's problems your own problems. Justice and righteousness are a big deal to God. You do a word study on this, the whole Bible, it is just everywhere. But the people weren't doing it, so God sends the prophets. And the prophets keep singing a song over and over. It's a song of Zedekah and Mishpah. It's a song of righteousness and justice. They sing it over and over. Isaiah 1, verse 17. God says the people learn to do right, seek justice. That's Mishpah. Defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Micah 6, 8, a well-known one. He has shown you, O mortal, or O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see Mishpat in there as well. Amos 5, 23 through 24. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Okay, well, well, maybe that's just those real crotchety prophets, right? They had a rough job. Maybe they're a little too cynical. How about the Psalms? Psalm 82, 2 through 4 says, How long? How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then what about Jesus' powerful parable of the Good Samaritan? It's incredible. The man of the wrong race doing costly justice and righteousness, Zedekah and Mishpat, for the vulnerable man who was a member of a hated identity group. And Jesus says, who loved in that parable? 
Was it those who walked by to hurry up and get to the temple to worship? Or was it the one who was of the wrong race who entered into costly ministry to care for somebody? Look, I'd say all of that to say, do not let bad theological movements that have distorted the biblical gospel keep you from living out righteousness and justice. We are called to be hearers and doers of the word. And justice is a term that should not be relinquished or scrapped because it has been abused by culture, but loaded with biblical meaning and dear to those who follow Jesus. And so recall again Galatians 3.29. At the end of that, he says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That means we are to walk in the ways that Abraham was to teach his family. Walk in the ways of justice and righteousness. And Jesus did this perfectly. And he gives us his spirit to empower us so that we can love well like he did. Now, next question. What about critical race theory? A lot of talk about this. And you're probably going, are you seriously bringing this up this far into the sermon? Like, do we have time for this? No, we do not have time to get into the origins and the manifold expressions of critical race theory and its ramifications. But here's what I would say, and I think we need to hear this. We need to assess CRT through the lens of CGT. We need to assess CRT through the lens of CGT. Assess critical race theory through the lens of crucial gospel truth. Don't assess crucial gospel truth through the lens of CRT. Because one is a theory, it's in its very name. It is a theory made by man. The other is the reality of God's divine reconciliation at work in this world through his power and his grace. Now, we should ask some questions of any social theory related to all this. We should critique various social theories that come across the field, that come across our our view. We should cross-examine them, so to speak. So, with critical race theory and other ones, here's some questions we need to ask. Does it equalize us all under sin? Or is it just certain groups? Does it affirm inherent human dignity, acknowledging that we are all image bearers of God? Does it see salvation in Christ alone or in some workings or schemes of man and not in Jesus? Does it lead to enemies becoming brothers and sisters? Or does it perpetuate a cycle of dehumanizing the others, locking people into a false binary where it's a zero-sum game where you can never reconcile because it's always the oppressor or the oppressor? Does it see power as a gift from God to be used for the good of others, even at great cost to oneself? These are the crucial cross-shaped gospel truths that we need to see and assess things by. Let the gospel shape how you see ideologies, not ideologies see how you look at all the scriptures, okay? It's an important switch. Now, apprenticeship-wise, what are we to do? Like, (laughs) what are we to do with all this? Let's start with this. Ask the Lord to search your heart. Is there any offensive way in me? Just go all Psalm 139 on it. Psalm 139, verse 23. Lord, is there any offensive way in me? He knows our hearts better than we do. And if there is, then repent, confess, fall away, Jesus. Next, 
we need to relentlessly find our identity in Christ. This is Galatians. Our identity is ultimately found in Christ. Our identity is not found in our ethnicity, our nationality, our culture. It is not found in being the oppressed. It is not found in being the oppressor. Our identity is found in the radical hospitality of God that is exhibited through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then knowing that, we live out of that identity. And with grace and truth like Jesus exhibited, we advocate for the oppressed and we be a voice for the voiceless. This comes directly from Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, which says, be the voice for the voiceless. Be like Christ. And then I'd say this. Let the Bible, not the culture, be the first and final word on matters of ethnic unity, equality, and justice. Let the Bible frame the conversation. Don't let it be a footnote like it so often is in conversations. Theory, 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 talk, talk, talk. Oh yeah, maybe the Bible gets slipped in here. Reverse the polarity on that. Let the Bible frame the conversation. By the way, on that note, I feel like I I should say this before we move towards a close. There is a significant difference. There's a significant difference between the civil rights movement of the 60s and what we have witnessed over the last couple of years. There was a deep spiritual foundation, a gospel center that King and others were relentless in building off of. They built off of the scriptures. It was framed in biblical metaphors, and it was operated by biblical principles. It was an Exodus-referring, Sermon on the Mount-speaking, prayer-saturated mission. Yes, with its flaws, for sure. But that was the intent. But much of the current energies that we have seen are not spirit-led and are not embodied in costly ways. They are much more secularized and digitized. There's no cross of Christ at the center, no reliance upon the Spirit's breath to bring victory, no humility of the Spirit that leads us. They're much more disembodied, less face-to-face and relational, more anonymous, hashtagged, virtual, prone to outrage with little, little accountability. Listen, you can't overcome the self-righteousness of racism with self-righteous activism. It is humility that tears apart the evil of pride. It is light that pushes out darkness. It is love that conquers hate. The Bible begins with unity and diversity designed for total flourishing in a beautiful garden. The Bible begins that way and it ends that way. Unity and diversity designed for total flourishing in a beautiful garden. The two fangs of racism deny our God-honoring origin and our God-aimed destiny. Friends, ethnic unity is not extra credit. It is essential to what God is doing in the gospel. Did Christ make any ethnic distinction in who he died for? then should we make any ethnic distinctions in who we should fellowship with and love? Racism is real, malevolent, and it's doing violence in our world, but take heart and take righteous action. The end of the story is better than the beginning. This is how the Apostle John ends the book of Revelation, and we'll close. Revelation 22, verse 1 through 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, right? Back to the Garden of Eden. 
bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. And then he says this in chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. I looked. He's seen the new creation. He's seen heaven. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, were holding palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive the reward of his suffering. And that is all the peoples of this earth. And the last application for this sermon is this. The table. It's the table. This is where we all confess our need. Where there is no superiority. Where there is no partiality. Just the amazing, nourishing grace of Jesus Christ. So here at this table of grace, there's no division by race. There's no division by culture. There is no slave or free, Jew, Gentile, male or female, but a new humanity and is saved by the grace of Jesus Christ.